What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Writing Friction. And as always, today's guest is pretty cool. Everyone say hello to Michelle Gallen. How are you, Michelle? I'm good. Thanks for having me on your um, podcast. Most definitely. We are talking via Zoom from opposite sides of the globe. I am in San Francisco. It's 7.05 a.m. What time is it in Ireland? It's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and it's bright outside, but we will have no more light after the next hour. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're, uh, we're entering the part where we're going to have our daylight back to us. And in California, it's, we live in the sun. So it's kind of like, have you ever actually, have you ever been to San Francisco? Have you been to California? Yeah, I've been to San Francisco twice. Um, okay. I, I was a bit of a geek. So I was at W, uh, MWC, I was going to say, uh, the Apple conference, which is oh, okay, just yeah. uh, because I've said MWC. I was over twice for apps and app development. I used to be in mobile apps. So okay. I kind of know the city from a very geeky viewpoint. And also because my husband's a big foodie, I really enjoyed some of the restaurants. Some of the best, I mean, l- legit, some of the best restaurants in, in the world. Um, well, I, I, well, well, <laughs> I, I don't know. So, so my, as I said, my husband's a big foodie, but we, we went, my favorite one in San Francisco is when I went to, I, I forget, it's some kind of really famous breakfast joint. And I, I went in and it's one of the items said um this one of the items was called 26 pancakes and so me being irish and being used to getting one pancake on a plate kind of thought 26 pancakes meant 26 ingredients or 26 toppings or 26 something so i ordered it and they brought me 26 pancakes it's america baby it's how it's how we roll (laughs) it's literal as we get but you're not from america you are from ireland um you were born and raised in ireland correct yeah, I was born in Northern Ireland, which is the part of Ireland that's um, run by the run by Britain, run by it's it's part of the United Kingdom. Um, so when I grew up in Northern Ireland, it was the, the troubles were happening, which was a, sort of an armed struggle or an armed conflict of, with Irish nationalists fighting um, the UK police and security forces in order to win freedom, as they saw it or see it um, from the from the um, British. So it was a it was kind of an intense time to grow up. But I have to say, current times in the United States and across the world are pretty intense. It's I'm you know I I try not to keep the podcast too uh, focused on the now, but it will be interesting to see how this is how history does look upon a bunch of questionable people storming the Capitol building. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, it's, I, it's I think I'm just really interested in how, you know, um, how, how you can actually, I, I don't know how possible it is to process conflict when you're in the middle of it. So I feel like we're living in another really interesting point in history, but mm-hmm. I find it personally very hard to process it. I mean, when I write in my books, I'm writing about, you know, a fairly long, you know, um, the conflict is history. You're, mm-hmm. you're kind of processing it as you write. So it'd be really interesting to see what sort of literature and music comes out of this time in America and Europe, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we didn't get a chance to mention before the podcast. So I, I grew up in uh, northern New Jersey, but I was born in Queens. And speaking about historical things that happened, at least in my life, you know, like 9-11, I was a freshman in high school. A 9-11. I was standing at my locker. My father from 1990 to 1999 worked in the Twin Towers. Um, you know, but just now you're starting to see these books come out about 9-11. You know, and and, and this has been 20 years from now. Um, yeah, so it is interesting to see what will be written about the QAnon people coming into the Capitol building. Um, yeah, it, regardless of that stupid shit. Um, so I'm assuming the troubles, you know, I did a little bit of research before this podcast. I've been watching The Crown. Um, I'm trying to get more into, uh, you know, that part of history. 
Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, was that was it literally? I mean, if you Google photos of it, it looks like it was just, you know, something literally out of a fictional book. Was it that intense? Did it really shape who you were as a, as a child and as an adult? Um, I think the intensity was it's low level um, conflict. So you might go for a full year, like I say, I'm in my town, the town I grew up, and you might go for a full year and nothing would happen, and then you might have a bomb or you might yeah. have a shooting. But there was also a divide between somewhere like my town where the bombs and shootings tended to happen. One side of the community was fighting with the other side of the community, but they broadly knew each other. So you might have a situation where somebody tries to kill somebody who's their neighbor or somebody, you know, it was very intimate form of violence. It was almost like people in your community were informing on each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you had in the cities, the violence was a lot, I think a lot um, more frequent, uh, often, you know, more bloody violence in the cities, but also a little bit more, a little bit less intimate. I imagine in the cities, you might not know who you're trying to shoot or blow up. Like, I, I, I think small town violence and particularly violence in, in, in the countryside is interesting just for the, from that point of view that it's almost like the uh, my imagining of the Italian mafia where the mafia knew each other. They knew everyone. They were family or not family, or they were, but everybody knew each other's connections and still they did these horrible things to each mm-hmm. other. Yeah, I mean, you, you you mentioned the Italian mafia. I mean, I'm looking at 17 books on my bookshelf about the Italian. I'm obsessed with the Italian mafia because I grew up around it. Um, but yeah, you're right. No, that makes complete sense. I mean, literally, you know, it's about territory, even neighborhoods, even just blocks, um, you know, street to street. So growing up as a child and maybe, you know, later on in, in, in adulthood, um, I'm not sure when you started writing fiction. I mean, did you come into it later in life? I mean, it seems like it's such an easy thing for you to be able to step sh- your shoes into and write about. Um, how did that kind of all come about? Did you, were you writing as a child, as a kid? Um, so when I was about 14, I wrote a short story and I, I really enjoyed writing, but I, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to paint and draw. And that was my my aim was to be an artist. But when I was about 14, I wrote a short story that won um, a big UK writing competition. You know, there were 32,000 entries in my story one. And um, that kind of got me properly interested in in writing. Um, but I, so then, I mean, I, I didn't get into art college, which, you know, is so sad because you applied you for actually, it. <laughs> I applied for art college and you actually don't even need grades to get into art college. <laughs> you just have to have pictures, like draw yeah. nice enough pictures that they let you in. And I had really good grades, but apparently my pictures were so bad, they didn't let me into art college. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I had to take my second choice, um, which was English literature in Trinity College, Dublin. Um, so I did, I did, you know, I kind of studied English literature and what's interesting is I actually find it far harder to write after I've read all these really good writers, you know, because, (laughs) you know, when you don't know how bad you are, you tend to work away. And then after that, it took me a little, so yeah, anyway, it's a very long story because when I was 23, then I had a brain injury and I was sent home to my parents in a wheelchair. So I... I didn't get to write again until I was about 27. And I wrote this book when I was, I think I was 30, maybe 31. Um, and it took a long time for the book to be picked up, for it to be published. 
Okay. It's kind yeah. Of let, let, let's get to all that because we're kind of on similar-ish paths. I mean, I didn't come to. I'm 33, but I didn't come to writing until I was 30. Um, and we kind of talked about it before the podcast. You know, I, as everyone knows, I was touring in bands forever. Um, what was that kind? Did you kind of have like a spark? Was there a moment where you're like, and the idea popped into your head? I mean, you said you studied English literature. A lot of the authors we talked to have never even taken a creative writing course. Um, and then you said how that might have been detrimental to you. Could you kind of unfold that a little bit when you kind of were going into that first attempt at writing this book? And maybe, you know, was there a doubt in your head about all that stuff? Oh, I mean, like there were so many doubts in my head because I might, I might have studied English literature, but I'd had a brain injury. You know, at one point I only knew my name was Michelle. I didn't yeah, know my name was talk Michelle about that? I mean, I'm not sure. Well, well, no, I mean, I don't mind, but like when it came to writing the book, the thing was I was only writing short stories at this point because my memory was shot to pieces. Yeah. So I couldn't sit down and say, oh, I'm wow. going to write a novel because I wasn't convinced that if I put the, if I started writing a novel, if I picked it up the next day, would I even remember what I wanted to write this novel about? And so what happened was um, I wrote a short story called Double Tub, and it was set in a chip shop, and it had a male protagonist, and it had the alcoholic mother, a and it had the whole... Shop? A chip shop? A chipper. <laughs> Can a wait, chip shop. Explain, explain that to us to our audience, please. A chip shop? I mean, gosh. <laughs> a chip shop is a... It's a fast food shop okay a fast food place where you usually don't you're not allowed to sit down and eat you walk okay, in there's yeah. a menu and you get to order and chips are like what you call fries most but, definitely but they're different and then you get it's usually deep fried food like chips and deep fried burgers and oh, yeah. deep fried fish and deep fried sausages <laughs> and it's sort of limited menu but everything is ridiculously tasty and ridiculously filling i, I love and i'm assuming kind of easy to write about ah uh, I, I think if you like fish and chips, yeah, uh -huh. but I don't think there's a lot of novels set in fish and chip shops. I'd say there's more set in restaurants and cafes or uh -huh. I'm not too sure there's a fish and chip literature like genre. Uh-huh. But not you said I you wrote think. a story about a fish and chip shop with a male potato. Oh, yeah, but I love fish and chips. I'm yeah. mad about fish. I'm mad. I, I really love takeaways. I really love eating. I, I, eating chipper food, as I call it, is such a comfort. So after written the short story, I had this whole... I had the whole world in my head and I knew that that was kind of there. So what I did was I was like, I have no memory. Um, I really want to write this novel. NaNoWriMo was coming up. So that's National Writer Novel in a month. Mm -hmm. And I took the month of November off and I wrote 70,000 words in that month, which meant that most of the book was there. Um, and, I, and like I even wrote the book in this kind of very linear manner. Uh, well, no, it's not linear, but it's set in a week. It's kind of like it does it does Monday, it does Tuesday, it does yeah. Wednesday, and it's kind of like each of those days was I, I was able to hold the, all of that in my head. Um, so yeah, it was it. That's how I wrote those. So you said you wrote that short story, and then you had the idea, and then you banged out seventy thousand words. That first draft was it kind of just the idea of just getting it down on the paper. Did you know what you were writing about? Were you kind of just letting it happen as it went along? I mean, you, I'm assuming that's the first time you wrote 70,000 words. Yeah, no, it was the first time I wrote 70,000 words in, you know, in a go for, for a novel. I knew, so it's kind of like when you've, I don't know, I, I used to game, computer game a lot. And you yeah. know when you've got like the world, so you, the world's there and then you, you choose your character and your character goes in. There's a certain amount of things that can happen in that world. So for me, it was kind of like, I kind of knew who, I, I knew, I really knew who the main character was and who her mom was. And I knew her dad was missing and I knew her grandmother had been murdered. But I also knew that nothing was going to happen that week because this actually 
is what would happen at home. Nothing would happen. Everybody would talk about the violence. Everybody would have an opinion on the murder. Everybody would be saying, oh my God, it's such a shame you don't know where your dad has gone. But nothing would change. And I, I really wanted, like, I know that people like a murder mystery where it's resolved, but in real life, people disappeared and they oh. never came back. Murders yeah. were never resolved. Yeah. Um, we talked uh, We talked to Julia Phillips. I don't know if you know her, but she wrote a great book called Disappearing Earth. Um, and she kind of sets it up where in the beginning, you know, you have this, you know, abduction. And throughout the whole novel, she barely mentions it again at all. I'm not going to give any spoilers away what the ending is, but yeah, you're right. Once you're kind of in there, like you're saying, you know, you know what people are going to say, you know what people are going to do. Um, the ending's kind of there. Um, but to kind of keep yourself, you know, motivated and stuff like that when you're, I mean, were you, what else is going on in your life when you're writing? I mean, are you working, you know, you're coming at it at a different time in your life. I mean, what's going, you were recovering from a brain injury. I mean, you know, you had a lot on your plate. It sounded like. Yeah, I was living and working in Belfast and I was working for the BBC in, in their website department on an Irish language project, but I was living in a loyalist part of Belfast. And if you can think of this in terms of the Italian mafia, it's kind of like saying you are working on something for your um, for your side, but you're living in your enemy's territory. Like you've actually left your neighborhood and you're living right in the middle of somebody else's neighborhood. So it was kind of interesting, but I was single and I had enough money to take a month off work. I had really cheap rent because Belfast was very cheap, funnily enough. Um, Not anymore. So I was able... So I wouldn't, well, comparative to Dublin, yeah. it's very, very affordable. Um, but I, I was able to do all that. Now I have kids. I, I don't, I, I don't work in the way that I could literally disappear for a month. I mean, I, I was able to just disappear and do what I wanted. Were That's you working much harder all day, day on that day. first draft? I mean, for that month, every day, all day kind of thing? No, I would sit down and write what I could, just let it all pour out. And then more more often than not, like because I had a really good network of friends and writers in Belfast, I would oh, okay. go and talk to somebody about it oh, and great. have a few pints and kind of say, I did this and what do you think of that? And often in Belfast too, it, well, the really lovely thing about being in Belfast is you could talk to somebody about something that you're writing or something that's happened to you. And you're talking to people who really get it, to really understand the nuances of the violence or the nuances of, you know, the paralysis. So it was just brilliant to kind of have my tribe around me and and, and get to write and really dig into it. It, it was a really good experience that month. Um, just out of curiosity, I mean, how did you meet these people before? Beforehand, before you started writing, I mean, you know, it sounds pretty lucky to have people to bounce your ideas off of, just friends in so, general. Yeah, no, I, I moved to Belfast from Dublin in, I think, 2002 to work in the BBC. And I joined a writer's group by, uh, that was set up by a guy called Martin Crawford. And actually, when I was in the writer's group, I met my, my, I met my clan, my tribe. So we, after the writer's group was over, we we basically became a splinter group. We, we set up our own writer's group. And then I was in the Queen's writer's group, which is the university one. Anybody can join. You don't need yeah. to be anything to do with Queen's University. You just drop in. And then Belfast had this brilliant under sort of like underground po performance poetry and literature movement where there were a couple of venues in the city which were, really should have been condemned. And you would rock up with bottles of drink, whatever you had. The lights were always really dodgy and everybody was very drunk or, yeah. you know, and everybody just did poetry and it had such a good vibe, you know I mean? It, it wasn't perfect, but it was really creative and you got to know so many people and the scene in Dublin isn't, well, I mean, I know we have a pandemic, but 
the scene in Dublin has never been that lively. Um, I, I mean, I haven't experienced a scene like it. But, you know, I was in my late 20s and early 30s. It's a really good time of your life where you have, if you're lucky, you have a little bit of money in your back pocket and you can decide, hey, it's Thursday night. I'm going to go and get trashed at a poetry reading, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was yeah, a good scene. Were, I enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, people in SF don't need an excuse to get trashed on a Thursday evening. But um, yeah, but uh, so with that being said, it's, it's interesting because you know, again, I grew up in the music world, and the music world by nature is a co-effort. You have bandmates, you have clubs. I mean, there's always other people you have to deal with, and it's actually what I'm writing in my book about right now. I'm writing a book about a rock and roll band, but with writers, it's such a solitary pursuit. And to have people that you can share your things with must have been pretty reassuring. Also, I mean, were you open to the, were you getting criticism at that time? I mean, were you open to people telling you your work sucked, your work was great? I mean, how did you deal with all that? No, people, people, I find Belfast people pretty straightforward. So yeah, people would say, well, that wouldn't work or that doesn't work or this works or they even better. They would tell you, you tell them like a scene and then they go, well, that reminds me of this time that I was down in Armagh and the RUC came out and then your, your built, your world gets even richer because somebody else is feeding you information about something else. So I, I, because I've just nearly almost completely finished my second novel Congrats. and it's been written in isolation and that's that's been hard it's like I you know like it's not that I haven't tried sharing scenes or I haven't shared the you know the manuscript with people but you're sending it via email and then it sits in their inbox it's not the same thing as standing in front of somebody in the pub you bought them a pint and you're reading it to them or you're watching them read it and they have to read it because you're standing in front of them with a pint so i <laughs> i know i would really like to get back to a point where i have a writers group where um, well, because of the pandemic i don't have a writers group um there there is one in dublin that was really interesting but we can't meet anymore and it's called the misfit pop-up gin writers group and basically it's a set of us writers who feel like yeah we feel like we don't quite fit into the literary scene and we just like together get together and you know there's gin and there's writing and that's really good and fun but Mm -hmm. you know we've not been allowed to meet for a long time now yeah so when you're working on the first book for everyone who doesn't know it's called big girl small town um when you finished it, you had the novel in your hands, you know, I don't know if you're working with an editor at that point, but I always like to ask people with the first book, because, you know, it's people want to know, how do you go about getting it out into the world? I mean, were you, you know, it sounded like you had a community of people. Were you able to kind of funnel your way through that? Were you cold calling people? I mean, how did you really push it out there? So it took three years to finish it, first of all, because I was so distractible, right? I mean, this was just one of many things I was doing. I was a geek. I was setting up websites. I was running businesses. So were you kind um, of writing then, this as like a, as a passion or were you writing it as something you really wanted to pursue? Well, my, my passion's always been writing or, or art, but um, I, I'm also really geeky. So, I mean, it's very hard for me to say, oh my goodness, the only thing I want to do is write when in fact I, I love, actually, do you know what I really love? I love learning stuff. And so in tech, 
quite generally, you can get on top of your game in tech and then something new comes along and you get on top of your game again. So it's quite an addictive cycle of kind of Mm -hmm. like, you never feel like, it's not like plumbing where you get, learn how to plumb and then you just apply it for the rest of your life. This is the one where you're constantly, you're on a treadmill, you need to keep up. Um, But no, I, I sent the book out for 10 years trying to get it published. So it took 10 years to get, 10 years to get a publisher. And I kept going because I I believed in the book. I did believe in the book. And I kept everybody, every time I got a rejection, it was warm. So it was always somebody saying, we love the writing. We love the world. The characters are brilliant. (laughs) But (laughs) what's wrong with Magella? Magella is the central protagonist of Big Girl, Small Town. And I was like, well, there's nothing wrong with Magella. What do you mean what's wrong with Magella? But then um, one of my female relatives got a relatively late diagnosis of autism. And when so I decided to read up on the female presentation of autism because I already knew about the male presentation because the men that in my family tend to get diagnosed early, supported early and looked at, you know, basically they're, they're looked after, they're in a system. And when I read about the female presentation of autism, I recognized my protagonist as being autistic. And as soon as I had that, it was like the key to the door. Mm-hmm. As soon as I was able to say that to people, then that this the whole her behaviors make sense to everybody. To stop you right there, um, you came across this realization after you've been trying to get it published or before you? Oh, wow. So, I mean, that must have totally just kind of fucked up everything for you, right? Oh no, it was brilliant. It was like the key to the door. I, I like I so said, what I did then was I, I, um, my husband took our kids to France for three weeks. It, he, his mom lives there. Um, well, my husband's French, but he, they took, he took the kids to France for three weeks. I was working in an office. So I would do my office job like eight to four, yeah. come back home, have a gin and tonic in yeah. the garden. It was a really beautiful summer. And then I would just spend that evening rewriting the novel yeah. because Magella's list is the very last thing that came in. As soon as I realized she was autistic, I was like, well, that's, that's that list. Because I had this list in my head of all these things she didn't like and the things she did like. And I was like going, but I have to put her list in because that's, that's in my head and that's in her head. So I did that and entered the, we have a thing called the Irish Novel Fair. You should look it up because it's a really, anyone in the world can enter it. But basically, if you've got a manuscript of 50,000 plus words, you can send it to the Irish Novel Fair for a fee. And if you're selected, they select 12 manuscripts to, to be, um, and you sit in a room for a full day with 12, age, no, 15 agents and publishers from across the UK and Ireland. And I think four of the 12 people got publishing deals last oh, wow. year. Yeah. And even if you don't get a publishing deal that year, people often get picked up again, you know, the following year or after a bit of work. Um, But that's how I did it. I was like, entered the manuscript, got selected, had two crazy car crashes, didn't get killed, then pitched pitched my book and got my publishing deal. Uh, I feel like we've hardly scratched the surface. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a similar thing where I've I've been working on this novel. uh, I, I wrote a novella. It got published. And I've been working on a novel for three years. And for two and a half years, this novel was in the first person point of view. And then I realized, wait a second, I'm kind of just trying to tell my story, but my story isn't that interesting enough to be a book. And then the light went off. Wait a second, put it in the third person point of view, pull the camera back. And I spent, I mean, months rewriting 94,000 words to be from the first person to the third person point of view. But like you said, it was like a key. I had the key to the door now. 
Like all of a sudden, yeah. this thing that I've been struggling with for that just wasn't feeling right and I couldn't put my finger on it. That was it. It was like, oh, wait a second. You're trying to write about yourself, but it's just not you. Let it be someone else. Pull the camera back, as I like to say. Um, yeah, that's cool that you say that. I mean, I had yeah, it was almost the exact same experience. And it's cool well, that you I've, were... I've, I've literally done the same thing with my yeah. second novel. I finished it, and it's in first person, and I finished it. And I was like, so before <laughs> Christmas, I, like, I got somebody to read it before Christmas. And they didn't actually say first person was wrong. But it, as soon as I got it back from them, I was like, first person, no, first person's wrong. This should be yeah. third person. And I have spent the last few weeks rewriting the whole thing in third person. Yeah. And it's the same thing. The camera has moved back a bit. There is this distance in it. And you do lose things when you're not in first person. It's not entirely a win-win-win, but it definitely makes this novel work in a way that first person wasn't. Yeah. Um, so. I'm a big fan of of that, but I just wish I could figure it out in the first scene instead of the last scene. That, and now that we're even talking about this, I'm thinking to myself, I mean, do you have a preference to what you read first person or third person fiction? Oh, I think that, and, and, and to be clear, I have no pre preference. I know from Twitter that I think first person is supposed to be less, um, you know, literary and less important. I think third person is what you're supposed to do if you want to be a very serious writer. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't care less. What I want when I open a book is to feel that there is a whole world there and to be transported when I'm reading. I, I, I'm I not a snobby reader. I'll read whatever I think will take me away from the moment I'm in, if that moment, mm -hmm. if, if, you know, if that's what I want, you know. That the Twitter thing you say is interesting because again, yeah, for the third person, I mean, again, you you're you're really making a fiction. I mean, you're really creating a whole other world. And I, I don't want to get too stuck up on my way of writing, but yeah, every time I'm in that first person world, I always feel like I'm just so involved in it that it doesn't even feel like fiction. It feels too real at times. Um, yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. So you're working on the second book. I mean, did you start that as soon as the first book was done? I mean, did you? Yeah. It, what, what was the process for that? I mean, how did you get into that second book? So let me see. I I, I finished the first book. I met my and also husband. Real quick, Ten years. What gave you the motivation to not give up on that first book? Because I'm really, if I believe in something, I don't give up in it. And I also like I I had get my book published as one of my to do list, one of my things that I wanted to do in my career. So while I was doing geeky tech stuff and I, I moved to London and I had a couple of babies. Um, I married my husband. Um, we moved, I don't know, I think we moved 15 times in 10 years. Um, I built up a couple of tech companies and then moved to Dublin. And when I moved to Dublin, I, I swapped the focus away from away from self doing setting up companies myself for tech to I did some freelance work which is easier than building your own company yeah. I own and, my own business I know I own a dog walk yeah <laughs> well, but, well it doesn't matter what business you yeah. own but if you own it yourself it's a huge amount of work right <laughs> so the, the point is is that I stopped owning my own business and went into freelance which means that you're fulfilling somebody else's idea of whatever and it's easier I, I find it easier to write and work when I'm not being creative at work so if okay. like if, if I mean even if I was doing a shirt ironing business if if that was my only thing I'd still have to be creative about how do I get my customers how do I advertise what's my website look like do I make t-shirts to advertise myself whereas when 
I try now to focus my creativity just on my book. So, so my, my brother's a musician, right? He's a musician and he's a writer and he's a photographer. He has like all these amazing, really creative things. But the thing that's killing him at the minute is the amount of admin and work he has to do on his photography business, right? He's really successful, but that admin is killing his creativity for his music and his writing. Well, it's time spent not doing what you want to do creatively, but it's also people forget, you know, like I, I love to exercise, right? So when you lift weights and you exercise, you're working your muscles, your muscles get sore. They need time to, to regain strength when you're all day, constantly just thinking about things and thinking about, and you, you know, you want to get home to write and you sit down on the laptop and you have your gin and tonic and it's five 30 and your brain just fucking exhausted. You're just like, I don't want, I can't do this. I find it very hard. So, so my, my angle on that is I, I used to come home from work from doing tech work and that's one part of my brain. But because I was coming home and it was just me and there was no kids and I didn't have to make, you know, a nutritious, healthy, tasty dinner and I didn't have to pick up somebody else's laundry and I yeah. didn't have to sweep the floor. Like all these things I didn't have to do meant that I had this energy, also pent up energy, right? Like if you're not, if you don't have the time to write and then somebody says you have three weeks and it's you know, do it or die. And I had those three weeks and I did that. And I I, th I think I respond quite well to being given like a really specific sort of here is a month, do it, or here is something like, if you don't do it, you're never getting this opportunity again. So I'm a big fan of working like that, but it doesn't work for everyone. It really yeah. doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. I, so you're not sitting out looking in the window, waiting for inspiration to come hit no. you. Of course not. No, yeah. I yeah. wish. No, definitely not. But I mean, even at that, I I have, I, I prefer to live and, and get out and meet people. And, and like, I mean, I, I find people exhausting, but I really enjoy <laughs> the act of getting into a room and meeting people and hearing about them or like observing them or whatever. That That's really important to me. I, I would, I don't really live in my imagination. I, I like to live, yeah. you know, where people are. Yeah, we spoke with um Rebecca Mackay, and um she lives you know in the outskirts of Chicago, and she says you know what she loves doing is like standing in line at a Starbucks, and some you know if she's working on something or a character's not working or anything, she's so open that if you know some kind of person walks in wearing like a guy in a cowboy hat and boots, that'll be enough to motivate her to go home and like just totally change a character. I mean, are you open to that kind of inspiration too to just let things happen? And you said you like to live your life, right? Well, um, you know, my, some of my friends said, put me in your novel. And I did, yeah. <laughs> you know, my friends said, well, I want to be in your novel. I want to be the person who comes into the chip shop with my dog or, you yeah. know, whatever. And I was like, okay, let's do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So they're not, the, the characters in the book are not my friends, but like they all know by the names I've used and the, the ticks or the little quirks that I put in that this is the version of them that they asked for to uh -huh. go in the book. So like I, I'm open to fun and I'm, when I say the world is there, the world very much is there. So um, a guy walking in a cowboy boots into the chip shop in big girl, small town would work because a lot of people love country and Western in, you know, the, in the world that I grew up in country and Western was huge. People did wear cowboy boots. Like there was a bit like extreme, but it happened. But if you said to me, oh, uh, I want a six foot four guy to walk in wearing red stilettos, this couldn't work in my world. It wouldn't happen. The mm -hmm. community would police itself so violently that that could never happen in the world. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like picking things that you know would work and, and they drop in and they fit. But it's it's like a computer game. The whole logic has to work. Yeah. You, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to name any, I'm, I keep looking at my bookshelves. I'm not going to name any specific books, but yeah, I mean, there are books that I've read where I've gotten, you know, 30, 40 pages in and then something happens where I'm just like, that, no, that can't, that can't, 
that can't even happen in this world. Like, and it's enough to just turn me off. But I mean, it got published, so obviously someone, yeah, someone. Liked yeah, I it. think there's just different. I, I think there's again, and like, I, I like I. It's even when I watch movies, is yeah. you know, there are things that just I kind of go. That's why I stopped watching Games of Thrones. I can't. I couldn't do it. I'm like, this is just not. I, I need something I can grasp on. Once the dragons were flying around in the background, I'm like, I, I can't do it. But but that's yeah, what but makes it clearly it. works, and it clearly works for loads of other people. So this is, and, and like that's what's interesting too. Exactly. And I think one of the hard things about books is a book looks like a book, and it looks like every other book. And I know we have covers, but essentially a book is a book, and book discovery is a real problem. Like so, if I've written a book about a chip shop set in Northern Ireland, you know, and it's dealing with post-conflict violence and the legacy of of, of violence, then who's the reader for this book you know yeah. i mean it's funny but it's not funny like um it's not funny light it's funny dark yeah and book sort of like book discoverability is like a problem that you know amazon haven't solved it for example with all yeah. the great data amazon don't care about books yeah um I haven't seen any of the publishers solve discoverability. What they do is they, if you're lucky, they will fire a lot of marketing money and marketing effort at getting to people to hear about your book. And the magic one is if people like your book, word of mouth is the the, the real winner. Yeah. This, feels a bit stone age to me well i mean you opened up a pandora's box to me i'm gonna try to keep it all in because i have a lot of thoughts about this subject um and like you well the publishing industry to me is stuck in the stone age but people seem to disagree with me on that i'm not sure why i feel like things can be streamlined a little quicker but then again there's other authors to talk to me there's so many books being published that you know they just have to that's just how it works it's just kind of how it goes um the book recommendation thing is interesting too, right? Because if you're on Amazon or whatever, you know, it, they'll, they'll usually be like, well, if you like this book, you might like these 7,000 other books. And you're kind of like, well, okay, I'm not going to do it that way. Um, that'll be, you know, hmm, maybe we should start something. I mean, you know, tech, you know, apps, maybe we should start a, a book every, finding. Every time right? I go to, every, no, every time I go to one of my VC friends, because I worked in tech and, and I used, you know, I raised funding. Um, every time I go to anybody who works in VC and you say, so I've got this really great idea for, um, an app for a, 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 as soon as you mention books or publishing, they just go, no, not happening. Why do you think that is? I think because I, I don't think there's enough money in it really actually for it to work. Um, I think it's one, of, it would be one of those passion projects where you might be able to build up something that might work, but even if it did work, where's your revenue stream? Yeah. Um, I think that publishing as well, I mean, although publishers have kind of banded together, I mean, the, the, the small publishing houses have been bought up by the bigger ones and yeah. essentially they're, you know, there are only so many big players. It's like the record labels. It's the same thing. Yeah. But Amazon is the actual bookseller, you know, even though Amazon doesn't care about books, it's so good at the distribution side and also it actually is quite good at saying here's a book you might want to read even if they're bad recommendations at least amazon recommends something mm -hmm. to you um and i i find that quite hard that how how can i go into goodreads and with all the thousands and thousands of books and goodreads and really good reviews and still come away not entirely sure what i should buy yeah so I, i'm um, bookshop.org is trying yeah, to be most definitely. the yeah, and and what I like about bookshop.org is it lets an author like me set up a bookshop. So I've set up my own bookshop where I kind of go, oh my God, here are really 
brilliant books that I love and I've got my own little bookshop and I'll say well Irishy stuff is here kind of dark stuff is over here books about kittens are here um and I I think that that there's something in that approach if bookshop.org can survive and get scale I think there's something in that that yeah. could work but I'll no VC is going to touch publishing apps well maybe maybe we could talk about that after the podcast but i want to go back to something you said earlier um about how a cow a guy walking to a start into a ship shop six foot four wearing red stilettos like that's just not going to work right so you can't force yeah. these things and you have people that you want who are asking to be written about in the book like i had the same thing with my this rock and roll book i'm writing you know there are characters that have to be in that universe and there are characters who simply just are not in that universe i can't add them just because i think it might be funnier you know if the readers see you know if i'm talking about some dirty club and i you know mention whatever whatever you know that th things have to line and it, it's it's important you say that i think a lot of people think fiction sometimes there's no boundaries but you've got to work within some kind of i think the logic is different to boundaries though so um, so for me, the logic of the book which would, would dictate that somebody could walk in in a pair of cowboy boots, but not a man wearing red stilettos. That's yes. logical. Um, my book attracted some celebration and criticism for the fact that it's body. And body means that in swear words are used massively. Yeah. Um, bodily functions are not hidden away. There, if Majella goes to the toilet, you'll know she's gone to the toilet when she's having her period. You know she's having her period. And I'm interested in this idea that, you know, in a lot of fiction and definitely in television, we we often censor bodily functions. I mean, how many how many times do, does anybody ever go to the toilet in a book, uh -huh. um, you know, or on a TV show or anything like that? It just doesn't happen. People don't seem to get bellyache. They don't seem to yeah. need to sleep. They don't snore if they do sleep. It's all quite sanitized. So I'm also very interested in this idea that I, I tried to write the world the way the world appeared in my head. And that to me, to be true to that world, I needed to use swear words sure. to the extent to which I used them. I felt it was important to talk about how people smelt or mm -hmm. how they looked or how they had sex. And they're not having like um, sort of clinical sex. They're having proper earthy sex the way people might have it. And I think that kind of honesty as well. I mean, that's important to me. Again, it's not for every book. It's not for every reader. But that kind of honesty was really important to me when yeah. I was putting the world together. And and, there, and you can make a humorous too, right? I mean, I have friends who haven't farted in front of their wives ever. You know, so like, you know, I, you know, you could be on the toilet for 20 minutes and I write about it too, where you're reading a magazine for so long, your forearms on your legs and your legs go to sleep, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. There, there are things you could write about. You're right. A lot of people don't write about taking a shit, um, but yeah. you could do it. Um, so what's going for you now forward? Now you have the new book. I mean, are you, is that the, the focus now of your life? Yeah, no, I want to, um, I'm sending the new book to my agent this week. And oh, I just hope, I hope she likes it and I hope my publisher buys it yeah. and I hope it works and I hope this is my life. Um, well, if not, you have be... 10 more years to get it published, right? <laughs> I, I have to earn a living. It would be really yeah. nice to earn a living from the books, which yeah. is really hard, right? If you've worked in tech and you've had tech money and you compare how hard you work in books for <laughs> I mean, the, the we just had uh, Mateo Ascarapur, and he came. I mean, he was working in tech out of college, and you know, and yeah, and he he did that thing. He rose yeah. those ranks, and you know, I'm not in that world, but you know, 
he was saying like, and now I'm writing books and now I'm, now i'm not traveling to bali uh you know things like that yeah yeah i mean it's really i mean it was it it was it was very important when i when i did write my book i was living in belfast and rent was incredibly cheap and the the cost of living was cheap and i wasn't paid very well but i was paid enough to not worry about having food and not worry about rent and i didn't really care about cars or clothes yeah so it it gives you an enormous amount of freedom if you can craft a lifestyle that is sort of frugal. But on the other side, um, yeah, like why should the tech people have all the fancy phones and Teslas? And maybe it'd be nice if we could kind of even out that. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> mean, you know, that's not, that's not that's not what this podcast is about. Uh, yeah, but I, I don't disagree <laughs> with that. Um, but it's also 2021 right now, so you can't. You know, I, I would love to live in 1950s East Village, Manhattan and make $3 a day and be working on, you know, the next masterpiece novel, but that's just not what it is. I walk dogs. You know, I, I'm, as soon as we finish this podcast, I'm hopping in my van and I'm picking up dogs. Um, you know, so like I, I've adjusted my life to pursue this. Um, yeah, yeah, Michelle, this has been a blast. I feel like we could talk forever. Um, I always kind of end these podcasts with a couple quick questions. Um, since you're not in America, you're in Ireland. Uh, for our Irish listeners, where are you shopping for books? Where do you buy your books? Any local bookstores you're a fan of? Oh, so uh, when I moved to Dublin, our local one was one called the Gutter Bookshop, which is in Temple Bar. So if most people go to Temple Bar, if they visit Dublin and um, Bob and the Gutter Bookshop is an absolute star for supporting mm-hmm. new authors and, and established authors. He works so hard. He's a great Twitter presence. So he would be my go-to there. Um, I studied in Dublin. So I also love Hodges Fidges, which is on on Grafton Street. Uh, oh, it's not, sorry, it's in Dawson Street, which is next to Grafton Street. Um, and the Winding Book Stair. Bookster? The Winding Stair Book. Okay. Oh my God. I can't. <laughs> we'll anyway, the Winding Staircase is another yeah. brilliant one in Dublin. And I have to have to have to mention No Alibis in Belfast, a stunning bookshop that stayed open through some very tough times. So I absolutely recommend No Alibis. Any any stateside bookshops you uh you like to rep? Anything? Uh, I don't. I, I when I was in New York in the nineties, yeah. I can remember. Was it the Strand? Well, I was going to say Strand. It was Strand? Yeah, they had to have been in the nineties. Yeah, they were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I I enjoyed being in the Strand, but yeah. often when I was in America, I was like I couldn't buy a lot of books because I was going back, and books are a big heavy old thing, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, you said were you living in New York for a time, or you were just working? I got sent to New York when I was 13 by my parents who wanted me to experience life in a non, um, non-conflict zone. So, so they uh, to Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't actually, we didn't actually spend, I, I, it was upstate New York. So it was oh, okay, much different, much different. But we spent a couple of weeks in, um, I, uh, what do you call it? I, um, Long Island direction um, with my uncle who was there with his five daughters and his wife. And it was a pretty spectacular Irish American experience. It was, it was magic. That's I, great. I, yeah. I, I my uh, Christmas growing up in a Jewish household was my mother and all of her Jewish friends from Long Island coming to our house and co- covering it all. Uh, yeah. That's great. That's awesome. Michelle. And last good question. Are, are you on Twitter, Instagram? Do you do any of that kind of social media stuff? Where can people I am Michelle Gallon on Twitter and have been for a very long time, much longer than, yeah. Anyway, I have nephews and nieces younger than my Twitter account. <laughs> and I'm on Instagram as Michelle Gallon author because I'd lost the login details to Michelle okay, Gallon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and I'm sure you could stalk me on Google if you're interested. Right. Actually, I have a good website, funnily enough, being a geek. MichelleGallon.com is my website. Yeah, I love my website. Yeah, my brother did gonna, it we'll, we'll end it on this for people who don't know. Websites for authors are usually it's just like, you know, here's the book, here's a little bio. No, no, Michelle actually has a very interactive website. It was in what you did. Was that your, well, you're coming from the tech world, but was that your idea to kind of promote the book on the website that way? Or was that the publisher's idea? Here's what's interesting. I'm a geek and I made a website and it featured really, it had bullet holes and it had like a pot plant. There was no pictures of me. It was entirely dark and yeah. really, really dreary and very intense. And then I said to my little brother, Decky, who's a musician and a photographer, I said, Decky, please help me. I need a website and I don't have time. Can I, can I commission you to do this? And he goes, okay, but you're not going to see it until I press publish. And I went, knock yourself out. This is what you get when your little brother, who is a brilliant photographer and a writer and a musician, like just kicks ass Well, he nailed it. Yeah, I mean, you you said there was originally originally a pot plant on it. Oh God, there was a pot plant and a picture of like a a picture of a place name with a bullet hole through it. It was so sad. And he just knocked it out of the course. MichelleGallon.com is the best writer's website ever, I think. Michelle, what a pleasure (laughs) speaking with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Michael. All right. We'll see you all soon. Later.